0: There are some people's career that you can only just marvel at. As far as tech startup journeys go, Gavin Appel has the trifecta. Massive success in an Australian tech company with a global exit. Investment partner at Squarepeg, one of the great Australian tech investment houses. And now growing his own scale up and advisory for both tech businesses and boardrooms around Australia. When sitting opposite Gavin picking his brain for this interview, one thing became really clear to me. When someone has had both the success and experience on both sides of the fence, you should keenly seek to draw out the insights and understandings. I think I managed to do that, and there is no shortage of gold nuggets in this interview for any entrepreneur. Importantly, Gavin has certainty of his position and of his views, and he doesn't mince his words or water them down. It's this strength of conviction that has guided him through his career and will no doubt give you some inspiration and fresh perspective. Enjoy. Gavin Appel, founder and CEO of Ignition Lane, welcome to Discipline.
1: Thanks for having me, excited to be here.
0: So, let me start by pumping up your tires a little bit. 25 years of global operations and investing experience in technology, industry spanning startups, corporate, and venture capital. Prior to Ignition Lane, you're a founding partner at venture capital firm SquarePeg, probably one of Australia's biggest and well known. VCs, and even earlier than that, one of the first employees and the CTO at Hitwise, a venture-backed startup that was acquired for around about 250 million US in 2007 by Experience. Experience. So you got a bit of a Midas touch here, Gavin. So let's go back to the start. Back at school, what did Gavin Appel's career look like in your own mind? What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Well, you know, everyone goes to school and they get their work experience week. And I was sitting there scratching what was back then lush hair with a lot of gels, slicked back, and I thought I want to be a pharmacist. I was in Year 9 or Year 10. I did my one week at the pharmacist. I ended up getting stuck behind the tattersalls, scratches kind of counter versus all the pharmaceutical stuff. Um, but got a week out there on the floor talking to customers and, and really enjoying myself, but... When things got serious around year 12, I thought, what am I going to do? And I decided to leave the door open and study commerce and science at Melbourne University. All my friends were going to go to Monash. I decided I wanted to break out, meet some new people. Reinvent
0: yourself? Reinvent myself
1: and, uh, and do a double degree at, at, Monash. Uh, sorry, at Melbourne. But things got pretty interesting in year one because that was when the internet started up. But people didn't call it the internet. Microsoft had this kind of little app that you could kind of put on you know, your Windows 3.1 machine or whatever it was. Messaging. And, um, with, yeah, with ICQ that was there and a few other bits and pieces. And that really sparked an interest with me. And um, my dad had purchased a, a, a second computer and said, um, and, and the guy, the computer man who came over to set it up said, it's really interesting that Gavin's taken an interest to this. And he's got inside all the configuration elements and installed his own things, you know, and that said to me that maybe there's an interest in in what's going on in this very, very early stages of technology.
0: So a little bit of a hacker getting in under the hood, trying to make things happen. You could call
1: that. Not, Not an engineer myself, a hacker through discovery more than anything else.
0: Right. And then it seems like as you go through university in your early career, you get into technology companies, Life Lounge. Sine waves. But then you're in this sales area as well, digital acquisition, digital sales. How did your involvement in that space come about?
1: Yeah, so as I go back to 1995 which was one year into university. It was coming towards Christmas and I wasn't going away at the end of the year. And I was chatting to my cousin uh, Barry brott who's a founding partner of SquarePeg as well. And uh, you know, he was a bit of a mentor for me in the early stages of my career, and he said, you know what? one of your dad's friends has a company called Beam Group of Companies, um, Fred Milgram, you know, he's got an internet division there, maybe just give him a call and see if you can do some um, some summer work. And I was taught early on, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I picked up the phone and gave him a call. I said, I have no idea what you do. I said, I know you do something in the internet. Can I come in for a couple of weeks? And, uh, and he said, sure. And so the really interesting time there was on day one where and I keep telling um, telling this person this story. Um, I rocked up to the reception. I'm sitting there, this you know young guy, you know, studying uni with, with with hair, hair. with hair, <laughs> and um, and out walked this um, this 23 year old kid as well from the lifts. And Fred, who was the CEO and founder, said, "This is Adrian Giles. He'll be your boss while you're here." And um, and Adrian took me under his wing for the next you know, 11 or 12 years um, because. A few years later, he became the founder of uh,
0: Hitwise. So this is an incredible—I don't know what you call it—piece of luck. But you've made your own luck by picking up the phone and asking for a for a job. So how did you move out of that with Adrian into Hitwise? What was the sort of what was the sort of turning point where he decided to go and create this business?
1: Yeah, so so back then, you know, this was years before Google was founded. We're talking about ninety five, ninety six. Hitwise was founded in 97-98 time period. So there was a good two to three years um, whilst I was studying, whilst I was working at Beam, whilst I co-founded Lifeland with my brother. And I also had, here's a little trick that not a lot of people know. I also had a little web design business on the side where I was hacking, a bit of HTML, a bit of CSS. Nice. Gav web design.
0: Oh, How original. What a marketing. How original coup, that How, is. That's a
1: marketing coup. That's that's one for the uh, one for the ages. Um, but but actually, on the second day of my my summer kind of internship at Beam, Adrian was sick, and Fred walked into the office and he said to me, "This was in 1995." He said to me, "There are these things called search engines. I know nothing about them."
0: Alta Vista, Alta Vista, Ask Jeeves, Ask Jeeves,
1: um, Lycos. Yes. He said to me, "I have no idea what these things are, but I want to be number one when anybody searches for any of our products." Right, and that was the. The starting point of search engine optimization in Australia, yeah, there was nobody else in Australia that we know of that was doing it. There's
0: possibly no one else with that thought process at the time that I want to be found every time someone types something in. That's right,
1: that's right. So, a month later, here's Gav, slick back hair, walking into Adrian's office with a spreadsheet in Excel because there was no Google Sheets back then for all you, all the young people listening to this podcast where I had all the all the uh, search engines across the top, maybe 10 or 15 of them, and all the rows were all the keywords, and it was number one across the board. And uh, I said, I'm done, what next? Yeah, right. Uh, I think a lot of other people realised that they also wanted to be at number one, and that really was the starting point of the search engine optimization industry. So so we were doing digital marketing and, and um, uh, well before people knew what digital marketing was, and that really became the starting point of, when SignWave started taking shape to be the first ever search engine optimization agency in Asia Pacific. And that's when I transitioned across to, um, to the business of SignWave.
0: Now, it's a complete segue, but if you look at, you know, we talk about this all the time, you look at search engine marketing and search engine optimization. At that point, you could throw an ad up, uh, you know, maybe on Yahoo or a couple of different places, put a few keywords into your webpage and you'd be founded. Almost anyone can do it. Now the levels of specialisation, even within Facebook ads and Instagram ads, I mean, the, the area is so big. It must be trillions of dollars worth of money every year spent in this space. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even,
1: you know, we talk about what's going on with the the, uh, the federal government and, and Google, they're talking about $4.5 billion worth of ad spend uh, on the table there from Google alone. Um, but going back then, I mean, there was no paid search. There was no SEM. I mean, this was three years before Google was founded right? So this is really early days. At Sinewave, we were selling search to corporates when they didn't even know what a search engine was. So when you think about founders today going into new markets, we were really on a new frontier there. So education was so critical at that early stages and I remember when Google did finally um, land in Australia and they poached one of my account managers to be their third employee. Um, one of the things that um, SignWave as an agency did with Google as the search engine is that we partnered up together and did a roadshow across Australia, New Zealand and Singapore to all the cities to educate the market on what search was all about.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, and looking back then, you know, you've then started your own business. How did, again, that over come where you go, okay, we think we can do this better and make money as a new frontier, but on our own rather than in.
1: Yeah, look, I think I think when when you think about it, you know, back in the late nineties, so I ended up going on and finishing my double degree, which you know, it's much to my it's parents' there. Um, happiness. Um, there were a lot of times where I questioned, should I go or shouldn't I go? But I wanted to. I you wanted could to have
0: had group. that. You could have had that story of being like the Drop university that, you know, draw, that's Yeah, a, <laughs> That's exactly
1: right. Um, but but you know, like you know, we didn't know what a startup was back then. You know, the catalyst for the Hitwise business that Adrian and Andrew um, founded was that at Sinewave we were growing traffic. We were growing um, back then visitors, page views, page impressions, etc. We were growing that for our customers. But the challenge was they didn't know whether their competitors were growing faster or slower than themselves yeah. because there were no comparative sites or anything. And that was where the idea of Hitwise came, which was, if we can um, partner with internet service providers, anonymize and aggregate the data, and then sell that back to corporates, they could then get a competitive position. We call it real time competitive intelligence, and we grew that business from there.
0: And do you look back and think of some of these sliding door moments? You know, you took this job, Adrian Giles, who you ended up working with for quite a long period of time, became your sort of mentor at this, but do you look back and think, geez how lucky was I to land in this frontier thing that actually you know there's been a lot of frontiers that never go anywhere but this one's become all pervasive. Yeah look I think I think um,
1: luck plays a a part in all of this right Um, you know as I said earlier if you don't ask you don't get you can't open that door. I believe that at each stage of my career I've opened the next door by asking the right questions and I think that Um, There are a lot of people who would be very happy to continue on the same path that they're on and and see where it goes. But for me, it was that I was really capping out in terms of learning. Um, And that's what made me jump from the GM of Sinewave, running sales, marketing and tech and account management across to the technology side and R&D side of of HitWise because I I asked the question and I said, it's time to move across.
0: Okay. So let's talk about HitWise for a little bit. this is a company that, you know, it, it, had it been born in this era, would have been one of these unicorn stories, a great Australian technology success story. How, how does the growth look internally from going their third employee to a global buyout by experience? I mean, what what an experience to get an armchair ride in.
1: I think we were very fortunate. We had an incredible leadership team. Uh, Andrew Walsh came in as CEO early on in the game as well who really led the ship. Um And Adrian, obviously, um, maintained his uh, technology leadership position. Um, I think, um, you know, from my perspective, you know, we had, you know, when when you look at a business from the outside, in, it always looks glorious, it looks great. But inside, we've got no bloody idea what we're doing. And I think that will resonate with every founder or every entrepreneur on this podcast, listening to this podcast. So we were just doing what we thought was right, talking to our customers we thought was the right thing to do. Now they call it customer experience, you know, creating an incredible culture. We just thought that was the right thing to do. You know, you Go out and booze up and go out and have functions and, and other things like that. We thought that was the right thing to do. Now they call that employee engagement, right? So you know, things um, in, in, in startup land, you're always trying to figure things out yourself. Um, what we wanted to do was continue to push the boundaries. We saw an opportunity in the market and then we um, aggressively grew that um, into the UK or into New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, the UK, and then ultimately the US. But it was in a very, um, very um, structured uh, growth story in terms of what we wanted to do. But but one big thing that all founders and entrepreneurs, CEOs can't predict is what's around the corner. And we went headstorm, full pelt into um, the dot com crash, right, two
0: thousand and one. Yeah,
1: right. So the day before um, September eleven. Uh, We launched in the UK. Brilliant. And so you really, I tell this story over and over again to to founders who are struggling with different growth barriers or or challenges that come up that are outside of their control. Ultimately, there are things that you can control, but there are more things that you can't control. And you really need to focus on what you can control in terms of pushing your business forward. You can control the culture that you build. You can control the product roadmap that you decide to execute on. You can control which investors you bring onto the cap table and which ones you don't. These are things you can control. And so, um, you know, for us, there was, you know, it was really tough. We had to shrink the team. We didn't know when the next sale was going to come, but we needed to stay focused on the fact that we would push through this and continue on that journey.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, what does that look like internally where you've committed to a a massive amount of spend and then you have – You know, black swan event essentially, and you're going. Do we pull back from this? What's the thought process there?
1: Yeah, I think there's you know, I think there's a a lot of thoughts go through (laughs) go through your head. Um, But again, it's that entrepreneurial journey. You you just need to. We were fortunate. We were able to trade through it. Uh, You know, we had to make some tough calls, um, pretty much across across the across the spectrum. But um, you know, we were fortunate to be one of the ones that you know didn't crash and burn at that time.
0: And for. Gavin Appel. At the end of this, you you get bought out by Experian. You take a, a role in the the larger corporate organisation. What's the uh, what's the change between the startup to a more structured bigger company? How how do you deal with that personally as well?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what doesn't change? So I, I I personally thought that I'd give myself six months. You know, big corporate wasn't what I wanted. And for context, for the listeners, you know, Experian in two thousand and seven was a 15,000-person organisation and $12 billion market cap. They had staff in 160 countries around the world. Hitwise was 240 people in five cities or six cities around the world. So very, very different um, organisations. As I said, you know, I thought I'd been there for, let's say, six months. I lasted four years, uh, which is really, really interesting uh, when I reflect on that. Um, I was very fortunate um, after my career building product and tech at Hitwise, to be um, extracted out of Hitwise as a, as a one product line and be put on the global executive team for technology and product across, I believe it was eight product lines. Um, and my boss was the ex-CIO of Bank of America who um, led them into the digital era.
0: So you based States. yourself in New York? I was or? always
1: based in Melbourne yep. and on a plane. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, a fantastic ride where I, where I learned a lot.
0: Scale and growth. So let's get into some of this domain expertise you've got. What do you think are the key ingredients and stages and those key ingredients at those stages for tech startups?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And look, it's going to be different for a lot of different tech startups, right? Everyone talks about all the buzzwords, product market fit, scale, growth, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I I think about this in the context of... So let's take a step back. I loved founders who have deep subject matter expertise and who are looking who are solving a real pain point i know that's a bit of a cliche but there are a lot of founders who uh, are excited by the startup world they believe they have a problem but it's really not such a large problem yeah and so they can get initial traction but then it very quickly plateaus um, after they've got their early adopters if you want to call them for want of a better word um, so scaling and growth can happen in a number of ways. Um, you know, they can scale through growing their customers and having the customer revenue kind of um, giving them fuel to throw on the fire. Um, or they can scale through external capital and and um, really um, aim to kick it out of the ballpark. Um, but, but, but growth for me, um, businesses that experience product market fit often um, don't realize that product market fit until um, you know they're driving the car and the wheels start falling and often everything because the business is growing so quickly. and that's
0: and that's product market fit is probably um, most aligned with what you'd call hockey stick growth in a business
1: yeah that's that's right I mean I think um, people are grinding away often you know so they'll get to hopefully businesses will get to their first hundred thousand dollars of annual recurring revenue then they'll get to their first million of annual and then $3 million and then $10 million and, and beyond. Um, and, and I think that the first, you know, the first hundred grand is of annual period of revenue is, is really hard for a lot of founders. Um, getting to the million is a milestone. Everyone kind of puts that as a bit of a stake in the ground.
0: So jumping around a little bit, let's just assume that you've gone through a process of scale and then back to Experian, you get bought out by this giant company. Um, what changes in a company, particularly culture, um when a big company takes over, especially a little Australian company,
1: yeah, it's it's, it's really really a lot of challenges. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I honestly don't know where to start, but I'll start with I'll start with one, which is around people, right? Retaining the best people through a transition like that is probably one of the hardest things. Um, and I think that the other thing for me is around um, Integration of acquisitions is a real big challenge for big companies as they acquire smaller companies. Yes, um, and more often than not, those integrations cost more and don't necessarily aren't as uh, successful as the M and team wanted them to be on their on their business. They
0: plans. never are. So, going kind to of fast forward a little bit, you finished with the uh, Experian experience, um, and then you go into Square Peg. So you go from being on the founder side now, you're on the investment side. And and for those who don't know, Squarepeg is one of the sort of probably the preeminent uh, VC in Australia, founded by Paul Bassett, one of the co-founders of Seek. How did this role come about? I mean, you mentioned Barry is your cousin, so you've got a close relationship there, but presumably they wanted you for your global view and, and what you'd seen. Tell us about that transition.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a very... Um, an interesting transition for me. So it was founded by uh, Paul Bassett, obviously co-founder of Seek, uh, Justin Liberman, Barry Brott, and Tony Holt as well. Yep. Yep. Um, so it was founded by those four. They now have $1.4 billion under management, um, which is you know up with uh, Blackbird Ventures and um, AirTria are, are starting to creep towards that level as well. Uh, they're probably the three largest in terms of funds under management in, in, Australia, in, in yeah. today's um, um, venture capital space. Um, and they invest in Australia, Southeast Asia, and Israel. So my transition to them was, um, you know, in, back in 2012, let's just take a kind of a trip down memory lane. Um, even further back, let's go to 2001, the dot-com. There was, you know, that early stage of um, venture capital. Uh, there weren't many breakout success stories, Yeah. right? Um, you know, if we look at, um, you know, Hitwise um, received Series A capital from Allen and Buckridge, which was a VC firm that was around back then, um, and then our Series B was from Inside Venture Partners over in the US, who are now
0: the, know, one of the biggest. One of yeah. the biggest. Yeah.
1: Um, and so after the dot com, everyone got a, quite a shy in Australia, and you know the venture capital industry essentially dissipated, um, and that's when companies like Atlassian, Campaign Monitor, Big Commerce they all bootstrapped themselves through the 2002 to 2010 type
0: and here, period. And to be clear, I think most of the money that did go into tech came from big family offices. So, you know, like Packer had a bit of a handle, I'm sure, in Seek and also... But yes, well, a lot of
1: it was family offices. It was yeah. not, certainly not the super funds who are now becoming much um, more heavily invested as limited partners in the venture capital firm. But then in, in 2000, um, 2012 is when uh, Blackbird Blackburn Squarepeg started up. Um, and started doing some early stage investing. Um, And then over the past eight years, there's a number of venture capital firms, a number of micro firms, micro funds, uh, which are really sub $100 million funds and sub $50 million funds. And there's a really, over the past eight years from 2012 to now, there's become a real culture for innovation, a culture for entrepreneurship, a culture for startups. So you're getting more incubators, accelerators, co-working spaces, um, and mentor networks, advisor networks. So the whole ecosystem really started building. Yeah. And there's a fantastic, I know Nick Crocker from Blackbird um, uh, did a tweet out about, you know, what are the businesses that have raised more than $100 million over, ex, you know, since 2012, since their first fund. And um, pretty much every year um, from 2015 onwards, there are businesses that are raising significant capital. Yeah. And now we're starting to see a lot of unicorns. Wallix, Canvas, Safety Culture, yep. Culture yeah, you know, there's a lot of momentum behind this, and and also with the super and funds good
0: listings this. as well, like um, uh, Airtaskers going to list, and there's so a to the list, you know, Redbubble yep. now sitting
1: at one point eight billion, Kogan sitting at one point eight yep. billion. So the tra- so back to your original question, the transition into into it, you know, when you think about venture capital, it's about you know, do you have access? Can you get the deal? For you know, and I, I love that kind of area. That's that's really an exciting space. You know, building on relationships. I, I believe that relationships are, are a critical um, element to, um, to, to to the world, right? Like, um, um, if you think about um, investing, you need to have the access. You need to be able to you know choose you know pick them. You know, they call it betting, but you got you got to pick them. Um, and it's it's really it's a huge responsibility because ultimately. As an investor, as a general partner in a more of an established venture capital fund, you're investing other people's money. As an angel investor, you're investing your own money. You burn that, yep, you lose the money, right? It's like professional gambling. Um, But with venture capital, you've got a huge responsibility to the limited partner. Selecting the... Startups to invest in is a really so
0: now it's like syndicated VC. professional gambling.
1: <laughs> um, and then but but now, as things are starting to become more competitive, right? So, before 2012, um, you know, Axel Partners invested in 99 Designs and Atlassian and other businesses, they were probably one of the largest VC firms without anybody on the ground in Australia. So, now in 2021, not only is the Australian VC industry growing and the angel community growing, but also international VCs. Like Felisa's Ventures and others are also uh, keeping a, a keen eye on Australia because what we're realising now, post COVID, during COVID, or what everyone else is realising is you can build global businesses from Australia yeah. and maintain headquarters in Australia. Yeah. And um, and so the international VCs, if they want a piece of the action from us Aussies, you know they need to they need to adjust their processes and their uh, investment criteria as well.
0: Um, Let's go into some of the domain expertise of investing then. Let's ask some investment questions. What are the key questions a founder must know the answer to and must know that they're going to get asked this question by investors?
1: I think it's less about the key question and more about the depth of knowledge they have on the problem space that they're solving. So, you know, the founders are essentially... Um, need to have absolute clarity and conviction over the problem they're solving and the path in which they're going to solve it. And you can't really pick what an investor's going to ask you. You just need to know everything about your business.
0: Be the smartest person in the room.
1: Well, not necessarily the smartest person in the room, but the smartest person about your business. You're turning to somebody to say, I would like you to invest in me. If they ask a smart question, because there are very not smart questions, (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that, Um, Being asked, right? But if they're smart, if they're a smart investor, they will ask you um, very um, detailed and very focused questions that impact them and impact their investment thesis and their investment philosophy. And you've got to remember that I I always like to think about, and I love it with what I'm doing with Ignition Lane as well. Now, at, at Experian, I was kind of sitting across eight business units. So you had that helicopter view of what was happening. At Squarepeg as well, you're sitting across hundreds and hundreds of businesses that you've even invested in or have not invested in. But there's a lot of signals you can draw from that, both good and bad signals. And in Ignition Lane in our advisory business, your consulting so, business, the same, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I like that breadth, but it also allows me to join the dots very quickly. And I think that that's what a lot of founders, um, um, let's say early stage founders, don't appreciate: is um, the questions can be. Draw the questions that investors ask can be drawn from a lot of different data points, and therefore the founders need to, um, you know, as I said earlier, have strong conviction around um, their responses, um, so that they don't, they don't waver, right? Um, because ultimately, if you're looking for a check anywhere from a hundred thousand dollars right through to you know, tens of millions of dollars, you know it's a, it's a big decision on behalf of the
0: investor. Um, how do you sort out which founders have the right motivations and those motivations to continue to build these scale businesses? Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a great question. So I, you know, I like to, as I said earlier, relationships are really important to me. I'm a relationship-driven guy. We've known each other now for five, six years. Um, I think um, I, you know, certainly uh, the, the founders that I'm closest to now, um, I've built relationships with over, over time, right? And you've got to remember as well that um, you know as the investment community becomes more competitive, um, the the decision on the selection criteria by the founder on which investors they would like to include on their cap table, the, the, the pendulum will swing towards the founder, right? Yeah. So if you've got a business that's performing really, really well right? And you go out and start talking to investors, they're obviously going to be excited because the numbers are up and to the right or whatever the key metrics are, which as founders, you should know what your key metrics are, um, tip number one. Um, but, but if you're out there, you know, people will want you, you know, you're the, you're the uh, coolest kid on the block and, and they're, they're going to want to, to get onto your cap table, right? So that, that's a very different conversation to a business that's um, burning a lot of cash, doesn't have clear product market fit but unless they get capital, they're going to be, you know, potentially on the on the firing block. And so, you know, you always want to, as a founder, you always want to invest at in a position of strength. You don't want to start your investment raise, as an example, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving in the US, <laughs> or a couple of weeks before Christmas in Australia, right? Because you, you know the momentum will be. Mark Suster, who's an investor over in the US, says um, he often says, "I want to invest in, line, uh, in lines, not dots." Right, so I'm pretty sure that's his quote. Let's let's hope that that's his quote. <laughs> um, but but ultimately, what that says to me is, don't come to me the day you want to raise money. You know, let's meet today. Let's meet again in three months or six months. Yeah. Let's meet again because that al- that allows an investor to put flags in the ground and understand this is what I said I was going to do. Yes. This is what
0: I've done. And I think one of the ways that was described to me, Gavin, was, you know, quite often when people see a snapshot of a business, so, you know, to Mark Zuster's (laughs) point or whoever it was, you go in, they get a photograph, they get a moment in time, they get a snapshot. But if you're a founder and you're creating relationships and uh, the investors being able to see this snapshot of the business in multiple iterations over a period of time they can build it into a bit of a movie about the business. So the only person who really has this movie view is the founder. They're in it every day. They're seeing every machination. But if you can do that with an investor and give them a little bit more than one photo of the business today, then you've got more chance of them being able to understand the business.
1: That's exactly right. So invest in lines, not dots. So get the whole line there. Show me your, show me all your trend lines of your NPS or your magic number or whatever the key metrics are you're looking at from a customer or an engagement perspective because then I'll be able to really understand, okay, well, what happened over here or what happened over here? You can have detailed conversations about was it a change in strategy? Was there an an event outside of your control that you needed to make some critical decisions
0: around? But I want to uh, ask a question back on investing. What's more important, um, capital or timing?
1: Uh, So I believe that timing is... uh, uh, the most important thing in terms of uh, startup success. Yeah, so there's a, a famous TEDx. I'm glad you asked this question. I sent this to a founder a couple of days ago. Oh, really? Talking about this exact topic. Okay. There's a TEDx talk by Bill Gross, who was a founder of GoTo.com and a number of other, I think over 200 startups. Uh, he did an analysis and then a five or six-minute uh, TED talk on uh, the most successful reason. Uh, n- number one, no, the, the reasons why startups succeed. And forty three percent of the time is timing. Really? Yeah. So if you think about timing, yeah. you know, from a first hand perspective, you know, the Hitwise exit in two thousand or Hitwise scale the growth couldn't have happened three years earlier because you know people weren't using the internet three years earlier. Really, couldn't have happened three years later either because somebody else would have done. You know, C couldn't have happened three years earlier. Couldn't have happened three years later. So timing for so many businesses like Clubhouse, we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is an audio so audio social network. Um, you know, timing is so critical for businesses to hit that product market fit, to hit the inflection point, but also to go out and speak to investors to secure new customers and the like.
0: And and Zoom's a great example of timing because you know, we're sitting here, we've got WebEx stuff going on behind us. A lot of companies have tried to do the uh, Um, web-based conferencing for for a long period of time. Uh, But then you get Zoom, which just happens to be close to the tip of most people's tongue at the time of a global pandemic, and it's right there to capitalise. I mean, that's a perfect example. Is it a better product? Who knows? But, like, everyone just jumped on it and now they're...
1: That's right, yeah. I mean, throughout 2020 and, and COVID, you know, technology businesses, whether they be around productivity, video conferencing... Et cetera, Or whether it be around e-commerce, they've had major tailwinds of acceleration.
0: Let's look at the other side of the coin. Then, why do most startups fail?
1: I think a lot of startups fail because they just they're just not solving a real problem. That, that's my my honest opinion. I think, um, or, or they're focused on, or they're making the wrong decisions during their during their scale. Right. So, um, why do startups fail? I think um, they run out of cash. Lesson one hundred and one: Don't run out of cash. Um, and I think you know, I think a lot of them they they get excited by the initial traction that they get, but over time they realize that their customer needs have changed, um, or they're not solving a true difficult problem. It's yeah. nice to have, not yeah. a must have. So so cash, the problem, and um, and 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 I think that for me, more I, more and more founders need to get closer to their. Yep. You know, I know it's funny, it's easy to say that and all that kind of stuff, but it's true. Yep. So I ask a lot of my founders, when was the last time you spoke directly to a customer? Yeah. And I think it's a really good... Very insightful. A good, um, uh, when was the last time you spoke to a customer? I think it's a good question to ask a founder to see how close they are to the to the coal face of their business, especially as their business continues to grow.
0: And also in tech businesses, a lot of technical founders aren't naturally very good salespeople in my experience, so they don't you know, they're happy to build the product in a vacuum without getting that feedback loop completed from a customer, which in my view is probably more experienced than how good your feature set is or your UI is, mm. getting something that customers actually want. That's right. And so
1: some of those technical founders may see that customer through the lens of their data. So they can see, you know, their marketing customer acquisition channel is driving a certain number of leads to their website through the funnel They've got online, you know, you can purchase the product online, so they may see that through that lens, but nothing beats a cold heart conversation with a customer.
0: And what about founders that blow you away when they walk into a room, they're all charisma and personality, and you first meet them and go, Wow, I've got to get aligned with this person. Um, do those initial gut instincts hold true over time?
1: Oh, it's an interesting one. Um, I think I think for some for some founders they do, and for some they don't. Like I think you can certainly be taken by first impressions, right? First impressions are everything, right? Whether it's um, your partner or whether it's going to a party, is this going to be a great party or not, or is this going to be a great founder? I think it's, how, for me, it's how the founders articulate, you know, what's the elevator pitch? How do they think, how do they talk about their, their culture? How do they talk about their people in their business? How do they talk about their customers? Just generally across the business, um, you know what is the, as I said earlier, what is that level of conviction and how well do they know that problem? So there are many founders that I've met with who um, um, you know, have full conviction and like, we're going to grow this to be the fastest business in Australia, blah, 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 blah. And some of them go on to do that, right? Um, but others, uh, others don't. So uh, it's really hard to pick, but that's why I say that I like to spend time with these founders, get to know them outside of a work session. Because yeah. at the end of the day, Whether it's um, what I you know what we do with Ignition Lane, or whether it's in the uh, full time investing space, um, you you need when when you're there pitching, you're selling. No one's themselves when they're selling. Take somebody out for a couple of beers, a couple of wines, or a couple of soda orders. Then you'll get to know who they truly are. And and I think that that's kind of where my kind of. secret weapon is or whatever i like to get to know people
0: outside of the sales cycle and- okay so now let's get into some of the stuff you do at ignition lane so you've left square Peg, you've gone out again into uh the world of digital growth and startups obviously that creates a lot of excitement for you yeah um building world-class companies you know uh, i'm just going to read something from your your blurb gavin believes the most successful businesses Will be the ones who think and operate like world class tech companies. Firstly, you've built a startup, been an investor at one of the preeminent VCs. I suppose your own consulting business is a startup in its own right, but why not do more tech startups yourself at this point in time? Yeah,
1: like, I'm not as young as I used to be <laughs> as well. And they do say that entrepreneurs in their 40s are, uh, that's when they really start thriving. Like Ignition Lane to me is a business that we're growing from the ground up. You know we've got our own systems and processes and customers that we need to we need to work with get the right operating model the right processes how do we scale what we're doing etc. Um, you know going to that point about you know I believe that um, the most successful businesses uh, will think and operate like a world class tech business I fundamentally believe that all you need to do is go onto the stock market or go and look at the Rich 200 or go and look at the you know the, the, the US stock market you know they're all tech businesses Google Facebook. Tesla now, Amazon. Amazon, Apple, you know, down, down here and Atlassian. Et Snowflake.
0: Snowflake.
1: Um, you know, they're all tech businesses. Yeah. So when I think about that in the context of traditional businesses, you know, I think about it in the context of what got them here over the past 10, 20, 30 years won't get them there for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And for me, the biggest problem facing the Australian kind of corporate world, let's talk about that for a second, is the lack of technology literacy
0: in the boardroom. Yep. Yep. Nobody,
1: uh, it's very It's very rare to find um, someone with our skill sets in the boardrooms thinking about data in the way that world-class tech businesses look at data. Yep. Think about the customers. Think about the employees. Yep. Think about the bias for action. It's these attributes that we call the startup mindset that I believe is missing in.
0: And you say you said earlier, you know, back at the uh, Hitwise days, you had no idea what you guys were doing, You're just iterating. So, how do you reconcile that with advising startups, where you've got on one hand this expectation that people don't know what they're doing, and on the other hand, you've got this incredible knowledge and value to contribute to them? Yeah. How, how, how does how how do you weigh those, and how does a founder weigh it?
1: Yeah, so I think I think we're in a different. Difference world, well, It's twenty plus years. You know, there's no hair lift on the top here. Going, <laughs> we haven't thrown that into this podcast yet, but there's no hair lift. Um, like, I think we're in a different world, right? You know, entrepreneurship now is a is a pathway for careers. You know, um, and and I think that um, as a result, there's more information, there's more success stories, there's more people to lean on, blogs to read,
0: yeah, webinars to watch, yeah, etc. So it's a very different.
1: Right. So, so reconciling the where we are today and how I think founders today want to surround themselves with people who have been there done that. They want to ensure that they can give themselves the best possible chance for success. So do they do what we did 25 years ago? Well, we did that out of necessity. Yeah. Now um, you know if there's a good alignment um, of incentives and an, an alignment of relationship in terms of skill sets and 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 the like, I think that um, founders can really accelerate their path to success. And you look at it, Amazon Web Services came along and within a split second, you can spin up an instance, you've got your servers and off you go.
0: Yeah, we talk about the old days of having to order in Sun Microsystem Blades and then configuring the box before you had, you know, this took days, now it takes seconds. That's
1: right. Like we were talking, I was on Twitter earlier this week with um, Alan Jones and Sydney and Paul Bassett. And they were talking. We were all talking about. Um, and when I say talk about, there were like five tweets, right? Um, but about you know Google, you know threatening to leave Australia, right? And where are all the other search engines? And one of them mentioned Web Wombat, and we actually Hitwise took over Web Wombat's offices, and they had built a purpose-built data center, which was perfect for us because we needed to buy Dell servers, physical servers, get them shipped to Melbourne, rack them up, configure them. Slam them back in the boxes and then ship them off to ISPs around the world. So if you said that to somebody today, um, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Just <laughs> press a button and off we go. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, w- my point around that is that, that the, the, the AWS now being one of the most successful business units of Amazon um, and, um, and the idea around um, the world that exists today, you know, the cost to start a scale up the cost to prototype or get that minimum viable product to get in front of customers. It's reduced down, which which is why now um, new financial products or financial instruments are coming into the market for founders, um, such as venture debt, such as obviously um, angel investors to give, you know, 50 to 150 or $250,000 and venture capital. These different, and there are other instruments. These different financial products are now available to founders um, because there are multiple ways to scale the business now. Yeah, and so just like Amazon, you know, reinvented the data uh, center space with AWS. Um, that's changed the profile of and the number of pathways that founders can um, scale their businesses.
0: So where does it go wrong for startups? And you know, currently in your Guys in ignition lane, where do you come in and go? Okay, this is how we can write the ship.
1: Yeah, I think for startups, uh, a challenge is around people. You know, we all know that people. You know, it's all about the people. Um, you know, from a culture perspective, the first I think the saying is the first five or ten people shape the entire culture of the business. Um, I think that you know, mishiring can be very expensive for fast growth businesses and even slower slower businesses. Um, you hire someone, you train them up. You've got a bias because you've trained them up. They're really not that, not performing that well. You wait a couple of months, you wait another couple of months. Suddenly you've lost six to nine months, but then you need to go and hire somebody else to replace that person. So, um, you know, I think mishiring is right, but you can't... Um, they might be great culturally. Sometimes people get hired and they're put in the wrong seat. And so sometimes if you move them from one role to another, they might go off and flourish inside your organisation as well. I think people's a challenge... Um, I think um, other challenges around it growing is um, building a product. So building an A380 when all you need is a propeller plane. You know, that the, the length of time to build an A380 airplane, um, the amount of features required, the perfectionism around something like that.
0: Redundancy.
1: Redundancy um, versus saying, you know what? Let's get this product in front of customers. There's always going to be product iterations, new products, you know, complementary products to increase what they call the average revenue per customer or the lifetime value. That's naturally going to come. But where do we start to be able to solve that first problem?
0: Yeah, yeah. And what about then uh, technology, um, product commercialization? Um what are the challenges that you see a lot of people running into? Is the same thing, the problems? Well, I think a lot of people just
1: don't know sales.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? You talked before about your technical founder might be more of an introvert, um, want to build an incredible product but don't really know how to sell it, right? So I kind of look at, um, there are, for me, there are two types of founders. There's the technical founder who might not be as strong on the commercialization, brand, sales, go-to-market customer, or there'll be the sales founder who might not be great on the technical architecture, on the product strategy, on what are the levers for growth, how can product really drive that next level of growth. And so for us, um, having our team at Ignition Lane having come from both the strategy and sales side and customer side, but also the technology and product management side, um, you know we can work with both of those types of founders. And I like to say it in ignition lane, you know, we, we we can sit in the boardroom and talk in the boardroom, but we can also talk to the developers because we've been both of those yeah that's, um, that's interesting rooms. And more often than not, you know, whichever CEO or founder I'm talking to, whether it be an enterprise or a startup, they're like, Yeah, I've got no idea what developers are doing <laughs> and fortunate for me i've run a team of over 300 developers so i kind of although i'm not an engineer i can um i can see through see through and and, and uh have an uh experience managing and building a great culture with them as well
0: yeah uh, well, direct question then who would you rather back if it was your own angel money a sales founder or a technical founder
1: um, you know, for me, I'll probably lean towards more of the technical founder. Right. Uh, it's just a bias that I have. Everyone's got biases. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are, um, who are the, uh, the sales-led founders. They just need to make sure they've got a great person that they can trust on the technical side yeah. that they bring in, right? Yeah. Um, but, but for me, you know, a number of the founders that I've backed predominantly um, are the technical founders.
0: Before we get into the quick fire round and finish off, I've got one final question because you mentioned it. You brought it up, not me. You said you'd, you'd been involved in a couple of failures. What do you What do you think is your biggest stuff up? And you look back occasionally and go, geez. Yeah, yeah,
1: thanks. I'm <laughs> glad I brought that up. Um, so I would only say one thing and it would be focus, right? Don't do things that you're not good at. You know, focus on what your super strengths are and execute against that. And so one, one particular area where there was failure was that, um, you know, we... Um, at, at Hitwise, we, we sold to um, enterprise organisations, to corporates, and we tried to do something that was online self-service, you know, do-it-yourself type stuff. What we didn't realise after investing some money in building a version one of the product um, was that it's a totally different product. It's a totally different customer set, different customer acquisition, different support, different sale, everything was different. And so we just said, that's not, we gave it a go. It's not our core focus. We need to put it to bed. And I think that that's a really important lesson for founders is that you need to stay focused. There are a lot of shiny objects that will constantly be thrown at you. Yes. Whether it's, oh, this product opportunity, that product opportunity, we could do this, we could do that on the product side, or here's a great event I could speak at, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this out in the event space, right? But ultimately, you can't lose sight of what you're paid in inverted commas to do every day, yeah. which is execute and build the business that you're building, no matter what that business is. And that requires discipline and that requires focus.
0: All right, so let's finish off on the quick fire round. Most memorable smell. Most memorable smell.
1: Ugh. Um, it'd have to be my wife's doTERRA oils. I mean, these things absolutely knock you in the face. And when we get on an aeroplane back pre-COVID, when we got on an aeroplane, she'd be like, I'm just going to put this on. And then the whole plane starts looking around and in my <laughs> head in my lap.
0: <laughs> if you got hit by a bus today and killed, what is the one thing, is this, the bus is bearing down on you? What's the one thing you would say, oh, I wish I'd done that?
1: Um, wish I would have done that. Look, I've, I've travelled a lot through my life, but I never lived overseas. So throughout my whole career, you know, most of the growing through my career was in the Northern Hemisphere, but I never moved house um, to live overseas. So I would say live overseas for a period of time. Um,
0: if you could go anywhere in the world for lunch now, and you can't, but if you could, where would you go?
1: Tel Aviv, uh, Yafo, which is uh, the old port of Tel Aviv. Spectacular views, spectacular food, spectacular people and spectacular history.
0: Um, What's your favourite movie?
1: My movies are terrible. I'll say, um, I'll throw out a funny one for you. Air Force One. Get off my plane.
0: Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford. Genius. Predictions for the next big Australian tech companies? Oh, the next Australian tech.
1: That's a good one. They're all, you know, there's a lot of venture-backed startups that are growing really, really well. I actually like the guys. Um, I'm not close enough to them, but I like what they're doing, the guys from Build Kite who really only had a very small seed round and then recently raised at a $200 million valuation, and that's a great story. I know the problem they're solving, but I'm not close enough to the guys there, but I would say that that's a, it's an inspirational story there and one, one for the making.
0: Predictions for the next big tech sector?
1: Next big tech sector, I would actually say healthcare. So you look at the big tech businesses, and you know, I've got my Apple Watch, my iPhone, my iPad and everything else in between. Um, they are investing heavily in health tech um, and the biosensors and, and other things inside the watches and of watching a, a podcast, not a podcast, a, a video of, Andreessen Horowitz talking about the different pillars to health as it's maturing, kind of like how AWS um, was a maturing of the data center, striving the payment stuff. You know, healthcare starting to get that uh, investment and also that is starting at the early stages of
0: maturing. Yeah, I I heard someone speak years ago that said that Apple will own healthcare, um, which is interesting. One piece of advice you would give a startup founder.
1: Uh, one piece of advice. There's so much advice
0: out there. You've only got one piece of advice. One piece of advice.
1: I'll just say, you know, give it a go. Trust your gut and intuition, but don't forget about who you're building your product for. And that's the
0: customer. Well, Gavin, thank you for your time today. First-hand insights are very powerful for any entrepreneur. Uh, I certainly gained some new insights. Thank you for being on Discipline. Right,
1: thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to hearing the wrap-up.